Welcome, everybody, to Hopeful Majority, episode number nine. We've got Ibu Patel with us, president of Interfaith America, one of the leading uh, thought leaders of our time. The question that we're going to be answering today, what are social change activists on both the right and the left potentially getting wrong about how they see the world? Again, a difficult question, a question that requires a lot of nuance and a question that requires a lot of thought. Every Monday, remember, we come at you live, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, where you get your content, because we're building that hopeful majority. We're building nuance. We're fighting outrage. We need that support. I need you. You need a conversation that lifts all of us up. Let's get into this one. And remember, this time, I'm not going to do the monologue in the beginning. I'm going to do my reflection at the end of this conversation. We're going to go straight into this conversation because this is a conversation that shows. And we don't want to just tell. We want to show. Let's get on with our dialogue with Ibu. Ibu, welcome to The Hopeful Majority. Manu, it's good to see you, brother. As as you and I were just talking uh we have conversations like this a lot. Somehow you give me some of your very precious time, but now we've got microphones in front of us. And what's interesting is every I time you and I- In all seriousness, I say this to you every time, like I love talking to you. So let's continue. Microphones okay. in front of us or walks through the woods in Kalamazoo, either way. That That's, I should show this to my mom because she she needs to somehow feel validated in, in, in what I'm doing. You? You <laughs> get a good job. This is me, I'm sure that- I turned out all right. Um, so, you know, when we were, the last time we saw each other was actually at Berkeley when uh, I got to meet your uh, wonderful family and we we toured campus. And if you remember, one of the things that you were really interested in was seeing the site of the Milo Yiannopoulos protest, right? And we walked through that area and you totally geeked out. I totally geeked out. And I told you at that time that one of my favorite books I'd read this year was your book about We Need to Build. And specifically, what I appreciated about it was it was a direct contrast to what I saw in 2017. Um, Like, what what do you think is the driving impulse at this moment that seems to sort of paint these two different worlds, a world where you see like these massive protests happening and there's a lot of violence and there's a lot of disruption. And then this alternative world that you're sort of talking about, which is a world of building institutions that we can actually create real progress. Like how do you navigate those two things and how do you think about this at this specific moment? Look, I mean, I mean, I, I, I think this is so simple that I almost, I am losing patience with, um, with the kind of standard way of thinking here, which, and, and the simple thing is you don't get a better society by screaming at people about the things that you hate about the current society. You get a better society by building the institutions of that better society. It's right. Like that's it. it like, does anybody really think that if you scream at things you hate enough, not only will they disappear, but something better will magically replace it whether that's a public safety infrastructure or a health infrastructure or an educational infrastructure or whatever that might be. If you want a better educational infrastructure, you can build a school. You can, you can figure out a better way to be a classroom teacher and then figure out a way for other people to copy that. Right. I mean, I think that the the David Brooks uh, kind of approach to, to social changes right here, which is that some people figure out a better way of living and other people copy that. How do you respond to the argument that, you know, I was actually in in Gettysburg at the Brave Angels convention two or three weeks ago, and there was a, a member in the audience, and one of the things that he had said uh, was that if there's a crack in the foundation 
any architect would tell you that building upon that foundation will lead to a compromised building. It would lead to a compromised institution. How do you respond to the critique that like, sure, we got to build. It's important, Ibu, that we have to build institutions. And yet that some might argue that the foundation upon which you're building is fundamentally flawed. That in fact, the a priority question is not building, but tearing down that foundation to then build. That sort of sequential argument. So what's interesting is I actually literally talked to the the nation's expert on this question yesterday for my pod for my own podcast, Daniel Allen, who's university professor at Harvard, first black woman to be a university professor at Harvard to hold that position, ran for governor of Massachusetts, has been like the chair of all kinds of impressive commissions from you know the Mellon Foundation board to. Uh, um, uh, a, a commission on, on, on uh, renewing American democracy for the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And I put this question to her. And what she said was, there were actually multiple voices and perspectives during the 1776 found, founding that were actually much more hopeful. There were abolitionist perspectives there, right? And so what, we, what her, her notion is, we need to go back and recover those perspectives that didn't get cemented in at the time, but that were actually present there. And we can think of the American, we can think of the American project as continuous from that, right? And so it's kind of a project in, in, in continuity. And Daniel Allen uses a house metaphor, the renovation metaphor, that this is a house that needs to be renovated. And I actually, again, posed to her literally this question, you know, and, and it's Isabel Wilkerson who writes, I think, most eloquently about this is a, a, a house with a, a crack in its foundation. Uh, um, and, and Daniel is like, well, actually, if you go back, you look, there, there were multiple foundations and many of them did not have those cracks in them. But I think the other thing to say is like, you know, uh, uh, Isaiah Berlin, the great philosopher, I think through, uh, he's, he's, uh, he's quoting Kant here, speaks of the crooked timber of humanity. Right. Can you show me any society that doesn't have a crack at the foundation? Yeah, which foundation is uncracked, man? Right. Right. <laughs> and and I, it, it is curious, like, why should we expect perfection of other people and generations when we are so far from perfect ourselves? So, so anybody who says that, I would look at them and be like, are you laying a foundation without a crack? So right I, now, I, I want to really stick with this motto. Right. Because, again, I'm losing patience with this perspective of we should constantly find cracks in other people's foundations. Should people look at you with the same rigor and critique that you look at other people? Do you think there's something about human nature and almost just it feels e almost easy to do that? to, to critique. It, it feels like that's junk food. It, it feels like yeah. it, be, do you, do you know what I mean? It's like, it's, yeah. it gets my activist kick going uh, because one of the things that you write about is like building takes patience. And, and I want to, again, push back a little bit because I'm hearing a listener and the point of the hopeful majority again, Ibu is we're embracing a world of nuance that I don't think there's an exhaust majority. I think there's a hopeful majority. And in that sort of spirit of nuance, I can just hear a young person listening to this right now and wanting me to ask Ibu, I care deeply about race relations and the Supreme Court just ruled that affirmative action shouldn't be constitutional. You know, I, I care deeply about race relations and I'm seeing on, on almost a monthly basis, you know, mass shootings. 
I care deeply about societal injustice and and what's going on in our society. And uh, you're coming on here telling me that every foundation's cracked. So let's let's move past this. No, I'm not. No, no, I'm not saying Manu, don't don't, yeah. don't 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 misstate me, brother. Yeah, I'm saying every foundation is cracked. Build something better. I'm not saying move past this. I'm saying build something better. Right. Build something better. So so. You should, and you can, here's the thing about America. You can do that. You can start a summer camp. You can start a school. You, you can start things, right? Like the things that other people have built. A uh, hundred some years ago, a group of Catholic nuns in the Mayo family started a hospital and it became literally the best hospital in the world. They didn't have a billion dollars. You can, you can, you can build that. And by the way, I, I say that that is, I mean, I'm saying it with a little bit of scolding tone in my voice, with an edge in my voice, but I actually mean that as a hopeful thing. I mean, there are societies in which you can't just start a school. Good luck just starting a school in Russia or Iran. Good luck, right? Why, here, yeah. Why does it feel like at, the, at, at this moment, that notion that you're talking about, which I'm, I would say I'm largely in line with if I were to put my cards on the table I mean, it's part of the reason why we're building, we're building the show, we're building an organization, working with folks like you. But why do you think the notion and the critique is so prevalent right now against building? I think because there, there is a set of people who have infused what is frankly an adolescent instinct with sophistication. I do not think that telling other people what they're doing wrong all the time is sophisticated. I think it's adolescent. That's what my teenage sons do. They, they tell other people what they're doing wrong all the time. And honestly, they don't even do that, right? <laughs> they don't even do that, right? And so if what we're talking about, uh, by the way, I used to do this. I know what it's like to, to this is who I was as a college and early 20-something activist. I thought... What I wanted to do was be in your face about what you were doing wrong. And part of the reason I wanted to do that is because I thought that was the only way to engage in social change. I was kind of initiated into social change through the activist door. There's actually lots of ways to engage in social change. If I'd been initiated through the social entrepreneur door, if, I, if I'd been initiated through the kind of uh, um, the nonprofit founder door, those are the doors, those are the rooms I, I, I migrated to, but it was later. Right. If I've been initiated into, if I had like taken my own faith seriously, which I take much more seriously now, and been initiated into the institution building door, which is something Ismaili Muslims, which I am, are very, very good at, uh, I would have been a very different young activist. But I was initiated into the, the door majority. of what you do is stand up, point your finger, raise your fist, and tell other people what they're doing wrong. And I was lucky enough to have mentors. Uh, Many of them were professors who, incidentally, were the ones who taught me the radical critique to begin with, but then didn't allow me to become ident to become the creature who only ever did that. They 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 taught it to me as a tool and a toolkit. You should know Marxism along with other things, right? And when and when I began to embody the radical critique that they taught me, again, as one approach to the world, which I think is useful, 
when I began to embody that, they were basically like, hey, buddy, time to grow up. Like they would, I literally professors say to me, it is better to understate your case than to overstate your case. It, more people would listen to you. I had a professor tell me if you weren't such a jerk, right? And by the way, I remember this like 25 years later, hugely important to me. That mentorship was hugely important to me. And when I, I write about this in a Chronicle of Philanthropy article that I wrote earlier, when I, uh, um, when I was starting Interfaith Youth Corps, the organization, the precursor organization, Interfaith America, and uh, um, you know, foundations wouldn't just throw money at me. Like after the first meeting, they Tell would say, me you have more it. work to do, you know? Uh, and I was like, this is white supremacists and colonialists and imperialists. Like my mentors were like, uh, no, it's not. It's called helping you achieve the level that you need to achieve to start a nonprofit organization. Like they're helping you. So you can, you can dismiss them if you want, but then you're not going to start an organization. And that was exactly right. That was the exact right advice. My concern about this era, Manu, and to be very blunt, is, is adults are not being adults right now. The job of the adult is to tell the adolescent you're being an adolescent. Why do you think that is? Why are adults not being adults right now? I think right that now? there's a small set of people who have basically made the space of social change radioactive with the sense that the only thing to do in the year 2023 is tell other people what they're doing wrong. And then tell other people why they, because of their various identities, are unable to accomplish things themselves. You're doing something wrong. I can't do anything constructive because of racism, homophobia, sexism, misogyny, patriarchy, whatever else, right? There's a small set of people who have basically, they have defined the space of social change and said, those are the only two modes that are allowable. And a lot of the rest of us, I kind of, they, we kind of live in that climate right now. And I'm kind of like, um, I'm done with this. I'm done with this, right? Because people say ridiculous things as a result of that. Let me, let me give you one example. When my book first came out, I'm interviewed by some some young lefty journalist, and and he says again with like this tone of like just utter self righteousness. Uh, um, you know, what do you have to say to my generation who is suspicious of all institutions and sees them for the oppressive instruments that they really are, et cetera, et cetera? You know, on and on and on. And I'm like, hey man, where'd you learn how to swim? Did did somebody throw you in a lake and say make it back to shore? Hope you don't drown. Don't you? Or, only you privileged people can swim, Ibu. <laughs> that's not swim, true. Swim. <laughs> um, and and where'd you learn how to do algebra? Where'd you where'd you first read? You know, uh, um, James Baldwin. Probably in an institution. Probably in something that somebody else painstakingly built. And so I think part of my my edge about this now is I just. I feel like it is the height of ingratitude to look at the people of the past and say, I repudiate everything. Especially when you live, if you are middle class in America, you are one of the luckiest people in human history. 
So what deeply runs through what you just said, which is that you operate from a point of gratitude, right, is to me that screams something else that I've seen throughout our conversations, which is that you're somebody that has a lot of perspective. Um, you know, you, uh, you're ethnically Indian American, you know, you and I have, uh, parents that have lived in India, grown up, we've traveled abroad. Do you think a part of this is that you have a perspective about other houses? You know, you have a perspective about what societies yeah. look like. Do you I, think there's I, a missing I, perspective I don't, I don't right now? I think the answer is yes to that, but it's because I have said so many stupid things and other people have called me on them gently. Right. And so let me, the, um, um, as you know, Manu, I, I write a chronic. I write a column off the Chronicle of, of, of Philanthropy. I'm going to I'm going to write this story in a in a in an upcoming um, upcoming column. Uh, um, the last time I called myself marginalized, I was in a taxi in Mumbai with my dad. It was early, either I think it was early 2001. It must have been. Yes, it was early 2001, January, February 2001. I'm explaining to my dad how hard it is to be in Indian at Oxford. Okay, I was a graduate student at Oxford. And I was like, you know, Oxford is the heart of the British Empire. They don't know, they don't know what to do when the their former subjects come back to study instead of as as people who are servants, blah, I'm making all this stuff up, you know. And so the marginalized people like me, da, 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 you know, I'm the subaltern. I'm like quoting all this stuff, right? Uh, and my dad like looks at me and then he points to this leprous beggar child on the street. And Manu, you know, you know India, right? Like every street corner in every major city in India has dozens of leprous beggar children. Not one, not two, like dozens. And he points to one of them. He says, if you're marginalized, what word do you have for that kid? And I, I honestly, like, I felt gross. I felt like I felt like what I had done was commit like a grotesque act because I had this image of like me sitting with this leprous beggar child and saying, Hey man, I'm really sorry that some beggar runner like chopped off your left fucking hand, which is what happens with leprous beggar children. Not all of them are born that way. Like literally people remove their limbs violently. I'm really sorry that happened to you, okay? I'm really sorry it's 110 degrees out right now and the monsoon will come tonight and you will not sleep. I'm really sorry that whatever paisa you get now, whatever, whatever coins you get now, you give to your beggar runner. I'm really sorry for the one chapati you will eat today. Sorry about all of that. But I got to tell you something, man. The, the peas at Oxford are really mushy and like the woman who serves them to me, like she gives me this look. And I just felt grotesque. I felt grotesque. And, and like, we are living in a moment where people are basically like, I'm in the same category as that kid. You know, I go to Swarthmore and I got a C in an English paper and I'm in the same category as, and I'm oppressed like that kid is. I'm like, wait a second. There's 8 billion people in the world. Four billion of those people live on less than $7 a day. One and a half billion live with parasitic worms in their bodies. Okay. And you're marginalized? Why? What's the purpose? Why wouldn't we wake up in the morning, again, if you're middle class in America, 
Median family income in America is something like $75,000 a year, by the way. So that's like middle class. Median family income, $75,000 a year. Okay. Why wouldn't we wake up and say, boy, I'm one of the luckiest people in human history. Let's go make the world better. I'm one of the luckiest people in human history. Let's go make the world better. As a as a marginalized Indian American, I just have to tell you that no, I'm kidding. You know, I think I think. Let, let me ask you this: Do you think on a college like Smorth, Swarthmore or the academic halls? And the reason why I'm about to ask you this question is because I feel like I've never heard actual poor people say they're marginalized. I've only heard it from like academic elites. Like I literally, whenever I'm having conversations, the language that you're talking about the equation of poverty, the equation of suffering, the equation of systemic realities, like all of these phrases, all of this vocabulary, all of this, what some might say posturing, others might say is real academic critique, seems to only be coming from a certain type of people. Do you think there's like a degree of, of social credibility here at play? Do you think there's a degree of sort of, you're the cool person in the room when you're saying yes. these things? That, do you no think there's a certain sense of like playing on human nature and just relationships here, social capital. So, you know, uh, it's, I I don't think it's not social capital. It's cultural capital, right? Like, like there isn't, there is an air of sophistication about it. The fist, it is like what, what you and I do, Manu, like building an organization, like hiring people, running programs, whatever. That's not what the cool kids do now. The, The cool kids stand up and tell us what we're doing wrong. Right. Trust me, I know. Yeah. <laughs> and and I I have always want I wanted to be a cool kid when I was young. And so honestly, when I didn't like make it to the top of the athlete ranks or even to the bottom of the athlete ranks, honestly, uh, um, uh, w- there was cultural cachet in being the kind of activist in college that stood up and told other people what they were doing wrong. And so that's what I did. And I you know I remember. Um, I write about this in, in We Need to Build, but I, a friend of mine, it, it was actually in grad school. Uh, he was starting a South Asian cultural club. And I was, you know, I mean, being Indian American matters to me, but it's not the most important dimension of my identity. So right. you're smiling. I think you remember this. I think you remember this story. Yeah. So um, I was kind of non-committal to going to this thing and then turned out I didn't have anything to do that night. So I went, I was like, oh, my guy, Ali has good Indian food, you know, there, whatever. So I show up at this thing and people are kind of milling around and they're getting to know one another. And I literally feel like I'm not getting enough attention. Like I'm, I'm, I'm admitting my adolescent, <laughs> my, my, my adolescent instinct, right? By the way, like I'm in my early 20s, it's grad school, Okay. And so I should, I should have like been much more mature than this, but I wasn't. And so I like stood up like on a stool or something. And I, my friend Ali like turns around and looks at me like, what is going on? And I, I basically call the meeting to order. Okay. <laughs> and I say, yeah, I say, listen, you know, as we begin this, this new South Asian cultural association or whatever it was going to be called. I think we need to make a strong stand to oppose colonialism. And all these people are looking at me inside so at the end with the flourish in all its forms. Right. <laughs> and my guy, Ali, who had like 
<laughs> so like starting this club, it's just like looking at me aghast. Like, what are you doing? You weren't even supposed to come. And now like, now you want us to be the Mau Mau. Like, what the fuck is going on? Right. <laughs> but like, I had this need to like be at the center of attention. And this was honestly one of the ways to do it. And not just be at the center of attention, but I had this need to like have this identity as the radical activist. It was, it was like a shirt I was trying on, you know? And I write about, again, I write about this and we need to build. Um, and one of the things that, that ha- you know, I kind of overhear this, this guy towards, towards the end of this, it's really a mixer, right? Like it's really like a get to know you. It's not even really a proper meeting. He says, you know, I'm from Hyderabad and I'm, it just came here for, for, for study. And like, I don't know any other South Asians and I'm, I'm lonely here, but I don't, I don't want all of this. And he kind of gestures towards me. He doesn't know that I'm overhearing him. And I just think to myself, like, boy, if like this poor guy never comes back because he like literally thinks that, that the Jacobins are taking over. You know, and he just wants like a place to like speak his language and like eat food that's familiar to him and like make jokes that are kind of inside jokes to South Asians. And if I've like kind of ruined this, like that's bad. That's really bad. Right. Well, now, now that the now that the rest of the world knows that uh, you tried to overthrow all of colonialism in all of its forms, a, a South Asian dinner party in college where they were probably eating dosa samber, which you know, the epitome of colonialism, the the natural question becomes that it almost seems like a lot of this work, it pivots on this notion of norms change. I keep coming back to this. Cass Sunstein, I don't know if you've heard of this guy, but he's... Um, of course I've heard of him. Yeah. So I, I recently read his book about norm entrepreneurs, right? And it seems like one of the things that you're talking about is that the norms that currently exist in society incentivize people to essentially tear down, incentivize people through forms of cultural capital, through the way that we're built, the way that you run a race in politics today. Almost every incentive points to radical critique on both sides as opposed to, you know, radical rebuilding and radical growth. I don't think that's true. Okay. Can I interrupt you? you? Could you push back on that? Yeah. I mean, I I mean, I think it's, you know, again, like this, this week for my own podcast, I've been, I've been interviewing Kwame Anthony Appiah, I interviewed Daniel Allen. I just met with Mike Stratmatis at the Obama Foundation. And it just reminded me, like, 12 years ago, well, what are we in? 2023? Yeah, 2000, like, we live in an era of critique of the resistance. It's been literally called that, right? But there was a, there was a different era not very long ago. Like, it, it, the Obama era, uh, um, building things, that was king. Right, like in what changed? That's what I'm I, curious. So I, I, that's I don't know. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I think in some ways the pendulum just shifts. I think the pendulum just shifts, right? And look, here, here's an interesting analog. I actually said this to to, to Professor Appiah an hour ago. Um, it's almost like the Stokely Carmichael takeover of SNCC from John Lewis. So SNCC, SNCC is founded by John Lewis and Diane Nash. Uh, Ella Baker is the kind of adult mentor in the room. It's kind of a Christian love organization. It is a civil rights, American inspiration, include everybody in the American project organization with a very nonviolent ethos. Again, we're talking John Lewis here. And then 
five, six years later, it gets taken over by a black power ethos. And Stokely Carmichael literally wins an election and John Lewis is banished, right? And I, I kind of think that like there's something that just pendulum just shifts in 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 uh, across time for human beings. Listen, Barack Obama lost a congressional election by 30 points in the year 2000. Four years later, he was a senator. Eight years later, he was president. Obama didn't change. He really didn't. I write about this and we need to build, right? I mean, my favorite story about Obama is somebody, a PBS, a local PBS asked Will Burns, an Obama staffer in his state, state Senate, in his state Senate office in the late 1990s, what were you doing when you know, Obama was giving the 2004 Democratic National Convention speech, there is not a red America and a, a blue America. There's one America. There's the United States of America, that speech. Wilburn said I was mouthing the words along with him because I'd heard the speech so many times before. Barack Obama was always Barack Obama. The nation changes, the climate change, right? So I think that like the ethos of the Obama era, diversity is inspiring. Diversity work is, is conversations across difference. Uh, America is a continuous journey towards increasing freedom and better relationships. You know, our Patrick heritage is a strength, not a, not, not a weakness, right? That's the Obama era. And it's, I think the kind of paradigmatic book of that era is, is Kwame Anthony Appiah's Cosmopolitanism. It's a book about, I, I see your identity and I recognize and respect it, even if it is in tension with my own. Okay. And I'm looking to build a relationship with you as much as I can. Right. And then I think that there's, there's a, there's, there are absolute like white nationalist racist ghosts in America that wake up from the grave and begin walking around. And it's not a small part of the American population. It's tens of millions of people. And then there's a set of people that get to the left of Obama, right. Who basically say, you are not taking racism seriously enough. And I think that like what happens is that set of people that get to the left of Obama, they, 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 they kind of uh, organize around anti-racism and Black Lives Matter. And then the set of people to the right of Obama organize around Trump. And basically what happens is those two energies, they meet in 2016. And that becomes the American political, socio-political battlefield, those two energies. But the big thing that I'm saying is not very long ago, Manu, our ethos, diversity is inspiring. I, identity should be respected even if they're in tension with each other. Cooperation is the most beautiful thing that we have. Conversation is the way to cooperation. We should build things, not critique things, right? That was at the center of the culture mm. 12 years ago. You you briefly mentioned President Trump, and I mean, in fact, President Obama just the other day put out a statement on book bans, and this wasn't just you know a statement on uh, uh, critiquing book bans on the left or the right. It was all over. He said we need to defend viewpoint diversity. We need to stand up for this ethos. We need to have conservative, liberal. We need a society that respects ideas, that sort of ethos. But the critical question that I can just almost hear a listener asking right now is. Do you think that that era would have ended in spite of Trump? Do you think it's an excellent question that Trump accelerated that? Yes, I, I think that not only did Trump accelerate it, but he, he becomes a totem for people to circle around, right? That, so, in other words, that energy exists in America. Those people exist, right? 
uh, the basket of deplorables, as Hillary Clinton famously called them. And they, but they're not especially organized or powerful without a totem. They're given a totem and not just a totem, but a totem that runs for office and wins the highest office, not only in the land, but the most powerful office in the country, right? And on the left, there is a totem in the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, I'm, I'm using totem descriptively, anthropologically, right? Which is, which is a symbol that people convene around, right? And these two movements, both of which exist, they've all, they, or these two energies become organized into movements, and then they kind of dominate the sphere, right? And what I want to keep on going back to is there is a through line in America that is about, that is hopeful, it's inspiring, and it is about building something better, right? It's Jane Addams, it's Abe Lincoln, it's Martin Luther King Jr., it's a significant amount of Frederick Douglass, right? It's certainly Barack Obama, There's, it's Bill Clinton. There is this through line, right? It's Brian Stevenson, it's Daniel Allen, it's Kwame Anthony Appiah, it's Jeffrey Canada. There's lots and lots, West and Moore. lots of people. It's yeah, West Moore, right? Yeah. And and I, I think that I think that the longer the moment of critique is sophisticated rather than a particular let me rephrase this. A constant critique is viewed as sophisticated instead of adolescent. I think critique is useful, but you cannot have a hundred arsonists for every architect. Right? Like you can have one arsonist for every hundred architects. To have a democracy requires people participating in the public. You need lots of people who are constantly like running for the for the PTA and like uh, uh, coaching little league and like uh, um, uh, you know volunteering to direct the school play. Like you need in a participatory democracy, you need those people doing that all the time. You cannot have a million people who are sitting around the people coaching Little League telling them everything they're doing wrong. Because you know what? At one point, they're going to be like, I don't want to do this anymore. Right. Right. And then you face the 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 slow monster that is apathy. Well, you know, uh, can one, I say one, something? About it? Please. Then the society falls apart. Right. Yep. Then this, if, if people stop hosting block parties. Yep. If people stop coaching Little League, if people stop volunteering to tutor in a participatory democracy, it falls apart. You don't have a society. Because that's a huge part. It's that simple, right? A huge part of American society is people giving their energy for free, right? The people who show up at the Chicago Food Depository, there's hundreds and hundreds of volunteers per month that make that place work. It's, you know, and then people are like, well, you know, the government should do that. I mean, who do you think the government partners with to like resettle refugees? A significant amount of what the government does social services wise is partner with voluntary organizations. So we have 10,000 migrants in Chicago that, that, you know, Mayor Lightfoot and Mayor Johnson, welcome to the city. Well, guess what they didn't figure out? Where they were going to sleep. Okay. Who's figuring that out? Catholic communities, 
evangelical churches. If those people stop showing up, you're done. The society's done. I was just listening the other day to Yuval Noah Harari, um, and one of the interesting lines he had was that democracy is a conversation, and conversations require showing up. It requires people to be there. I need your help with an idea. So as you talk about, and then we'll go to this conversation diversity real quick, and then I know you've got a hard stop, so we'll get you out of here and respect your time. An idea that I've been thinking about, and it's, it's not exactly formed correctly, but I think you're sort of getting at this, which is that it starts with the assumption that I think the fundamental divide in our politics and our democracy right now is a divide between theories of change. It's a divide between, it's a divide above ideology. You know, forget like what I think about tax policy or criminal justice or whatever. It's how do you actually create that change? It's the divide between the radical critique and the building, um, which can exist on both sides. You mentioned the people left of Obama and the people right of Trump, right? Um, that there seems to be, again, I don't want to create an equivalency, but there seems to be a temperamental alignment between those two groups. Is there something there to that idea and that concept that that, that the divide is about a theory of change and that really what we're let, litigating right now in society is not what type of change to create, but how to create change? And that that is actually what motivates and inspires people at this unique moment, because everybody is just exhausted by how people are trying to push their vision of the world forward. Yeah. So, you know, I've, I've got a, I've got a new line. I'm going to try it on you that um, uh, um, the, the, the radical critics on both the left and the right, the ones who are saying the institutions get rid of all the institutions again on the left and the right, you know, um, are they Robespierre's auditioning to be Ayatollahs? Like, are they like in the middle of the reign of terror and what they really want is to be in charge and they really want to implement their regime or do they not know what they're doing? And here's what I mean, right? Like, let's say you are a hardcore abolish the police type and you wake up one morning and you've won and the police are gone and your house alarm is going off. Who do you call? Like, let's say you win. Let's say the institutions go away. Let's say the guy who said there's the crack is at the foundation and the house just evaporates. It's just gone. And you're back in the state of nature. Here's the question. Is the state of nature John Locke's world? Where we're all nice to each other? Or is it Thomas Hobbes's world? Right? And, and this is, I think, part of what I think strikes me about, about radical critics is you don't want the, you don't want what you're chanting. You don't want to abolish the police, right? You, when you make a phone call, you want somebody to show up, right? And so part of what adults do is they say what they mean. So let's say what we mean, right? And what we mean is, let's have better than we have now. But let's not say the things we don't mean. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting because I think a lot of people, when your vision of the world and when your view and I think take on the world is fundamentally just a, a, a power struggle, right? When, you're, when your view of the world is just as simple as good versus bad or a constant dialectic, of of systemic oppression 
with with poverty. You know, when your constant view of the world is, I think, a history of power struggles, I think it's very easy to have simple lines of critique and not worry about the nuance. Because that almost seems like a fog. It, it almost seems like you're wearing these foggy glasses. And there's nothing else beyond that immediate fog. It's There's a power struggle. You got to turn down that power struggle. So then you're not even thinking about the question of what happens when the world is what you realize it to be. Right. And actually, what I like ha- what, what, happens, happens, yeah. what happens when you're the dog who catches the car, right? Yep. Because yeah, you're going on the offense. Mm-hmm. And I and that's that's the point of this entire show is I think the people that are trying to advocate for our again, not uh because people from across the political spectrum listen to our work, not necessarily the ideological alignment, but the temperamental view of the world that we're advocating for, the theory of change that we're advocating for. We're we don't go there. We don't go on the offense. I I love what you're doing because you're calling people out. I mean, I'm not calling people well, out. I don't want to say that. Yeah. That's not that, right. But, I'm calling I'm calling I am I am stating clearly the spirit of the age. The spirit of the age is is a small set of people have made the idea of constant critique feel intellectually sophisticated and as if it has cultural cachet and guys like you and i live in that world and so we're constantly apologizing for or constantly being like well you know here's what i'm trying to do a little bit better but i understand everything is really fucked up but i'm going to try to do this a little better and i'm like wait a second actually Mature people try to do things a little bit better. That's what life is, trying to do things a little bit better, right? That's what, that's, that's what you do as a parent. That's what you do as a coach. That's what you do as a teacher. You try to do things a little bit better. My kids learn how to do fractions today. Next week, they'll learn how to divide fractions, right? And, and I guess what I'm saying is, why are we accepting the spirit of an age that is based on the most adolescent approach to the world. I'm going to constantly tell you what you're doing wrong. And I'm going to constantly tell you why I can't do anything constructive. I think because it's easy. It's easy. It's easy and it gets you the cultural capital. I, I, I This might sound super reductive, but what President Obama, what even President Reagan, you know, you could make this argument for a lot of different folks, did was they had to figure out how to, as David Simas often talks about over at the Obama Foundation, you know, there's two ways to lead. You can either lead by turning people against each other or by turning people towards each other, right? And by turning people towards each other inward, like that's a much harder form of leadership. Because if you do view humanity as two sides of the same coin, you've got cynicism and anger and frustration on one side and hope and optimism and and love on the other. I mean, it goes to fundamentally somebody else you interviewed recently that I saw on your podcast, Jonathan Ike, who wrote King of Life. You know, the fundamental difference between King and I think Malcolm X was a fundamental difference in a view of human nature and, and a difference in the faith that they were placing on the possibility for our better angels to rise. Um, yeah, just seems just, to me, you know, but you know, what's interesting is, is I think one of the reasons that, that, that the resistance sits so uncomfortably in my system is because I'm a Muslim. Right. And, and I say that because the, the, the prophet that I follow, the prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of God be upon him. What makes him distinctive amongst the prophets in Islam, all the prophets are viewed as equal, right? But they're distinctive. 
What's distinctive about the Prophet Muhammad is he builds a city. He doesn't just preach a message, he builds a city. He builds the city of Medina. In fact, the city is renamed Medina, the city of the Prophet, after he arrives. It's previously called Yathra, and he literally builds the institutions of a city. He builds a constitution, the constitution of, of Medina, which is a loyalty pact between the diverse tribes, clans, and religions of Medina. It recognizes their diversity and it requires them to work together, for example, in times of conflict. Okay. Number two, he builds a masjid, a community center where people from all walks of life of Medina gather. It's not just a place of prayer for Muslims, it's a place of arts. It's a place of, it serves as a place of prayer for Christians. It's a community center. It's a place of meetings. It's a place where people can have marital counseling. Okay. He builds a shura, a council of people who will interpret the constitution of Medina. He builds an army. He builds a market. He builds a charity system called Zakat. So I follow a prophet who doesn't just preach a message, doesn't just say to the, leaders of Mecca, here's what you're doing wrong. He actually moves to Medina and he builds the alternative. And it's not perfect because humans aren't perfect. Okay. The institutions aren't perfect. The prophet is perfect, we believe, but the institutions aren't. Right. And so I kind of look around at people who are like, no, the work now is to tell everybody what they're doing wrong. And I'm like, wait a second, who's building Medina? Like, do you not see where, like, in a hydra moment, we're like in a journey moment, right? The hydra is the prophet's journey in the year 622 from Mecca to Medina. That's where we are in America right now. We're in a hydra moment. We're in a journey moment from one era to the other. Okay. Are we going to leave a less good era and go to the imagined place where we all stand around and tell everybody else what they're doing wrong? Or are we going to go to Medina and build the institutions of a new city? Right. So for me, like there's this is not just a practical strategy, although it is also. And it's not just temperamental, although it is like I am by temperament, I am moderate. I'm a moderate, right? Although I'm sounding pretty fiery now. By temperament, I'm a bridge builder. Okay. By temperament, I'm a builder, period. Right. And and what's interesting, I was again, I was just literally just talking to Kwame Anthony Apia, the great NYU philosopher who wrote cosmopolitanism and the lies that bind writes the ethicist column for the New York Times. And one of the things he writes about is like having respect for the religious identities of people who disagree with gay marriage, even though he's gay married. Okay. So I say to him, I'm like, you know what a lot of people would say now, uh, Professor Appy, I said, you know, I would, they, they would say that, that if, 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 if they're in a same-sex marriage and somebody else disagrees with it, that, that they are denying the humanity of the people in a same-sex marriage. And Appy is like, that's preposterous. <laughs> He just said, that's preposterous. Of course, you can be friends with people who disagree with your marriage. Who cares what they think about your marriage? Go to the movies with them. Find something else to talk about. And it was so simple. It was so simple, right? And, and, and he's like, I don't think that they're denying my humanity. I don't, who, who cares if, I, if they think my marriage is a sacrament or not? I don't believe in their sacraments. They don't believe in my marriage. Who cares? Let's go have dinner, right? And I think like, like literally our, our most... I think, thoughtful philosopher of diversity issues, maybe in the Western hemisphere, is like, do you think, did you think we had to agree on every important thing? 
what do you think diversity is? Right. It's, it's almost like we accept, I don't want to use the word compromise, but we accept incremental progress. We accept compromise. We accept all that in every aspect of our life from like our marriage to our friendships. But for some reason, when it comes to politics, it's different. Even though in all of those other spheres, your identity is at stake, your livelihood's at stake. It's such a fascinating and odd world. You know, it's been my dream for us to just put a microphone to us just having a conversation. And I'm so grateful to you for finally having the opportunity. I I, I could sit here and and both continue listening to you and asking you uh, uh, pointed questions because I think those questions need to be answered if we were to have our theory of change win. I want to end with this, which is the question that I ask everybody on the hopeful majority, um, vastness of politicians, of celebrities, of influencers, my dad, um, Uber drivers that we hope to have soon on the hopeful majority, uh, which is, what is your why? And you might have gotten to that a little bit with, you know, your faith. Yeah. What is your answer to that question? What is your why? You know, so so the the great poem by by Gwendolyn Brooks, uh, speech to the young, speech to the progress to words, where she says, uh, "Live not for the end of the song, live in the along." So you know, part of my why is I just love this work. Like I'm a builder at heart. Like it's what I love to do. Okay, so that's one. Two, I'm a Muslim, and I really believe in the Medina vision. I really believe that like the sacred thing to do is to build institutions of a society. Three, I'm an American, and like how, you can't like the the. the the great citizen of this nation was Jane Addams, okay? And she built an institution. She built Hull House. And that institution provided a practical solution to virtually every problem at late 19th, early 20th century Chicago. A practical solution. And then that solution spread. And so it's, it, it is deep in my, it's, it's in my temperament. It's in my faith. It's in my citizenship, you know, uh, uh, to do this. And... And I love the work, and it's good to hang out with folks like you. I mean, what the hell else would I do, Manu? What, what, else, what the hell else am I going to do? What am I? I'm nothing. I don't have any other skills. I got to go, you're buddy. Awesome. I appreciate you, brother. Um, I appreciate you too, man. I appreciate what you're building. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening. Ibu, thanks for being on The Hopeful Majority. Well, that was just a fascinating, fascinating conversation with the one and only Ibu Patel. This didn't come up, but Ibu served on President Obama's Faith and Advisory Board. He uh, leads an organization, one of the largest nonprofits in the country, Interfaith America, focused on religious diversity in the country, focused on building pluralism where everybody's views are accepted. And part of the reason why I wanted to actually reflect on this conversation instead of putting my usual monologue in the front is because, again, episodes and conversations where we show instead of telling, I think are particularly powerful. And as you know, because I don't want you to turn that dial, this moment, the moment and the opportunity of the hopeful majority, the moment that we're all so focused on is not a moment where we're fighting between different ideologies. This is not a battle between ideas. It's a battle between temperament, mindset, how. How do we create change? How do we create the world that we want to build? This is not a fight, I think, between conservatives and liberals, between libertarians and and atheists. Pick your divide. This is a challenge between people that are open-minded and people that are closed-minded, people that want to create spaces that bring people in so that we solve problems and people that want to shut people out, people that want to build and people that want to tear down. And that affects people on the right and left. You heard Ibu talk about the fact that people that are left of Obama and right of Trump, 
what unites those folks, and I want to create a false equivalence here. Don't ding me for that. But what unites those folks is fundamentally a vision for how to create the world they want to build that oftentimes we are challenged by people that are prisoners of their ideologies. Ibu had a fascinating critique of radical critique that we live at this moment where it is easy, easy to challenge, to, to say that our institutions are flawed, to say that we cannot make any progress, to say that it is impossible to build. And it is incredibly difficult to actually challenge those people and meet them where they are. That in fact, to create progress from a conservative or liberal vision requires us to listen to people, to engage, to build coalitions, to not tear down, but to build up. What I really appreciate about this conversation is because it has deep implications for our politics. Almost every candidate today and part of the reason why 2024, we're so exhausted. I mean, I've yet to meet somebody that's like, go 2024. 2024, people are exhausted because almost every candidate in the current race, Republican and on the Democratic side, is talking about what we need to run from, talking about why the other side is terrible, leading with an ethos where they are turning people against each other instead of turning people toward each other. That there is an impulse in humanity to either be cynical and angry or to be loving and empathetic and understanding. And right now, everybody in our politics, as Ibu said, the adults are not being adults, everybody in our politics that has the microphone. And again, I said, most people don't agree with that approach. Most of us want us to actually get around a table and have a conversation that we can solve our issues so that we can build institutions that are productive, that are responsive, so that we can go into rural America and urban Chicago and understand the plight of people so that we can actually solve those problems. But Again, the challenge is that it is easy to critique, that everybody, that loud minority of voices that hold the microphone have created a monopoly over how you build the world that you want to build. That if we view the world as fundamental power struggles, it is easy to not have a nuanced understanding of the world and instead say that the other side is purely evil and we got to tear them down. That we're in an ideological battle between two sides and one side must be excluded. It's a zero-sum view of the world. It's the difference between a sports debate show and a podcast. Shots fired at Stephen A. Smith. It's a it's the difference between a long-form conversation and a news clip where you take down the other person. It's the difference between you and I getting together and having a conversation and you and I shouting at each other because it gets us more Twitter likes. The incentives in our society point to a moment where we prey on each other's divisions at the expense of each other's humanity. And that is uniquely corrosive. One of the cool things that stood out of this conversation was that democracy is a conversation. Democracy cannot exist if our churches are not showing up, if people are not volunteering for each other, if, if nurses aren't caring for each other, if our firefighters are not showing up, if we're not going to block parties, if we're not participating in not the presidential elections, but the interstitial fabric of democracy, what happens between elections. Because democracy is more than our elections. Democracy requires us to show up for each other. How can you live in a society in a democracy if you have no respect for the people that live with you in that society and democracy? Because democracy at the end ultimately requires respect for everybody's voice. And now I hear you. I hear you. you're going to say, Manu, the side that I disagree with does not have any respect for my voice. Why am I supposed to have respect for their voice? Well, that's where you got to check out episode two of The Hopeful Majority, where I talk with my amazing colleague and friend and mentor, Monica Guzman, about how to have those incredibly difficult conversations in very divided times. 
or you go to episode one with John Wood Jr. where we talk about the implications of race and identity in our politics. This is not some kumbaya conversation with the realities of the world are lost upon us. In fact, this is a realistic conversation about how you build the world that you care about. And just as Ibu said, we are exhausted. We are exhausted and annoyed and frustrated with a vision of a world that is so simplistic that it is perceived as intellectually intelligent. The view of the world in which the other side is terrible and we're good. Humanity is way more complex than that, and we know that. Because when we start to split between good versus evil, tragedy ensues. We, in fact, have the most realistic vision of how to build a world, and those that oppose us, those in the vocal minority, are actually in their own echo chambers. That winning in our echo chambers is like winning in practice. It actually gets us nowhere. So the point of this conversation was, I think this elucidates and answers that fundamental question, what are people on the right and left that proclaim themselves as activists or that proclaim themselves as populist and actors or anybody that is pushing for a war? What are they missing? And that's what I think they're missing. Most people today that you ask and are politicians, in fact, this is a challenge. Let's ask her, what is your actual vision? What do you want the world to look like? Most of them can't answer that question. I can bet right now. Because everybody's busy turning us against each other, and very few are actually talking about a vision for what the world ought to look like. Because it is much harder to build coalitions, and it's much easier to build our own echo chamber and fight the other tribe. And that's what we got to stop. That's why the hopeful majority exists. And importantly, the reason why I'm brimming with hope and optimism after that conversation is because I think that that conversation, again, was another example of showing, not telling, what it means to build a nuanced, hopeful majority. See you next week. Episode 10, we're going to have Jonathan Igon talking about King A Life, one of the most influential biographies this summer. has hit the New York Times bestseller list. If you appreciated this conversation with Ibu, remember, like and subscribe. If you're on YouTube, leave a rating, a review on Spotify, Apple. We got a hopeful majority to build every Monday. Remember, we're building nuance, fighting outrage, one conversation at a time, one member at a time. I appreciate your support. See you next week. <laughs>